Good morning, church family. It is, uh, it is always good to sing what is true. Uh, even when we, when our faith is frail, when we are weak, we uh, remember. Uh, the Lord uses the words that we sing that we need to remember to believe, and he helps to reinforce uh, his goodness to us. So praise God. Um, it's good to be together this morning. Uh, spring is upon us. Uh, there's a lot going on um, in the life of our church. I'm so glad that so many of you are, uh, have, are, have joined in on Bible studies. And, and in all of that, all that we do, including this morning and every time we gather, the, the reason for that is not so that we might be busy together as a church family, but so that we might enjoy Christ. So all of our doing, all of our efforts are so that we would come to him. We would follow him, love him. Um, so let's, let's do that now in his word. So we're, as, you, as we just read, we're traveling through the gospel of Luke <clears throat> and we are uh, in chapter 13 this morning. So you can follow along with me. Well, whether, whether you're a parent or not, uh, if you've ever tried to help a toddler with something, you've probably experienced the moments of the hand jerk. They pull the hand away, right? You, you remember this moment if you're a parent. If not, you've probably tried to help a kid with something and you try to hold their hand and they're like, no, 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 I got it. I'm good. And then they fall down. Uh, or you try to help them open something that they clearly can't open. And they're like, mm, I got it. Uh, or just whatever it is, they obviously can't accomplish the task, it doesn't seem, but they're, they're not going to admit defeat. They've got it. Uh, we are all prone to self-sufficiency, it comes in us from the womb. And while all of life and many of, our, many, of, many of the religions of the world have their meaning in trying to make us stronger and more self-sufficient, Christianity is the ultimate religion of weakness. Weakness. And it's the acknowledgement that our self-sufficiency is just an attempt to cover the fact that we have great need, uh, that we can't save ourselves and so in today's passage, we're going to see these two contrasts on display, weakness versus self-sufficiency. Um, and as we see Christ heal this, this broken woman, we, we get a sneak peek of the kingdom, of what the kingdom is like that God is building. Um, and we're going to see three truths about this kingdom. So number one, uh, Jesus strengthens the weak. Number two, Jesus rejects the self-sufficient. And number three, Jesus, Jesus makes us ready for the kingdom. Let's go to him in prayer now together. So would you join me as we pray? And just right where you are, let's just begin here. Just ask the Father. Go to him and ask him to rid, rid, rid you of distraction, uh, to maybe where your heart is, is, is anxious. Uh, would you ask him just to bring you back to, to have ears to hear and a heart that's ready to listen? now I, I would ask that you you'd pray for me, um, that I would hear God's word, um, that I would speak only what he would have me speak um, so that we might be edified by Christ, that we might turn to him. So help, so, so pray for me now.
Oh, Father, what else do we have apart from you? What other words of eternal life can we run to but the words of Christ? And so would you help us now to, to, want to come to him? Would you give us, <clears throat> would you give us soft hearts that would receive uh, all that you would give us? And Lord, would, would you convince us this morning that Jesus is all that we need? We love you. Would you lead us now? Do this by your spirit, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we begin with number one, that Jesus strengthens the weak. <clears throat> so starting there in verse 10, where we read just a minute ago, uh, that here's, here's what we read. As, as he was teaching, this is Jesus, as he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, a woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for over 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. So, so first, isn't it interesting that despite all the opposition Jesus has begun to receive, he is still teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath. This is, this is kind of like when one of my Aggie friends invites me over to watch the LSU A&M football game, uh, that they, 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 I'm their friend, they, 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 it's really kind that they would do that, but it might go badly for them. Um, it might also go badly for me, so. Um, but the, 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 the matchup is much less even with Jesus. Um, he's, he's got the upper hand, uh, kind of like the Tigers do a lot. Um, but, uh, sorry, okay, we, and we move on. Uh, but it, it's, it's, like these, it's like these Jewish leaders can't figure out what to do with Jesus. Uh, they're, they're still, we're still hissing. Uh, uh, but they, they don't know what to do with Jesus. They're okay with him as a teacher. They're like, all right, uh, at least, at least that they know that he's drawing a crowd. But his claims about being the son of man, his, he calls Pharisees hypocrites. Uh, that stuff is starting to wear a little thin, um, no matter what the crowd he's drawing. In fact, there's a reason why this is the last time in the Gospel of Luke that we will see him uh, preach in a synagogue. And he, he's already been run out of other places. And after today, I think he's officially wearing out his welcome, uh, whatever welcome was left. So we're told he's teaching uh, now on the Sabbath. And really the scene stealer here in this, in, this, in this scene is not something that Jesus says, it's something that he does. Um, at, at the center of the story, Jesus encounters a woman. And, and we're told three things about this woman. She was disabled by a spirit for 18 years. I mean, you can't get a lot lower on the societal totem pole. She's a woman, she's disabled, some evil spirit of some sort for many years. If you remember, this is a theme in Luke's gospel, Jesus giving dignity to outcasts, where women were often overlooked, seen as second class, Jesus elevates them. He heals women, he talks to women, he even invites them to come be a part of his traveling crew, his disciples. This woman was also disabled. We're told she was bent over unable to stand upright. So clearly this is a, a physical problem of some sort, but, he, but even further, Luke says that she was disabled by a spirit. So, and we don't know exactly what this means, but it, but it seems uh, understood that, that she was not just physically bent low, but she was spiritually broken too. Uh, and this had gone on for 18 years. I mean, we start to lose our minds when we have a cold that lasts 18 days. But 18 years of immense suffering. And we, and we don't know exactly why she's at the synagogue. Maybe, maybe she had heard that, that Jesus 
uh, was coming and she was curious. Maybe she heard he was a healer. But I, I think likely, based on, on the context, I, I think she was likely a Jewish woman who was probably often around synagogues. Uh, and later, <clears throat> because we see later, she even acknowledges God. Uh, but the reason she's there isn't super important to the story because, because we, know, um, we know how she was probably viewed by everyone who was there. She was unimportant. I wonder, even that morning, if anyone had even noticed her yet. She's like an extra on the set. A background, background noise there at the synagogue. Easily ignored, pitied. But none of that matters to Jesus, does it? He has way different priorities than everyone else. In fact, it doesn't seem to matter, uh, it doesn't even seem to matter what Jesus had intended to do there because when he sees her, that's where his focus goes. When others had looked past her, Jesus looked at her and saw immense value. We read that in verse 12. He saw her, Jesus saw her. And he didn't wait for her to come to him. He calls out to her. Let's read it together in verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called out to her, woman, you are free of your disability. Then he laid his hands on her and instantly she was restored and began to glorify God. Woman, you are free of your disability. This is one sentence. I think I'm not trying to count on the fly. I think that's seven words. So I think it's five Greek words and 18 years of suffering wiped away. 18 years of chronic pain, 18 years of depression and discouragement, 18 years of spiritual anguish. And in a moment, gone. You're free. You're free from that very thing that's tormented you. And not just free from the the emotional torment, but he lays his hands on her and she's physically made whole in an instant. It's not, hey, just go home, try these stretches out, do a follow-up appointment with the chiropractor and then come see me. No, it's instant. It's done, restored, bent back, upright. I think we see her faith. Notice she doesn't even, she's not asking Jesus questions about who he is. No, she knows what's going on. She knows this is the work of God. She glorifies God, we read. And look, I'm, I'm sure all of you are kind of imagining this scene in your mind. And we've heard a bunch of these. Like Luke is full of stories like this. And so let me just, just don't, like, if, if we saw this, we would be going, What? So don't just like read it and go, oh yeah, another one of these. Now, everyone in this scene, like they knew this broken woman. They probably had seen her around the synagogue. I'm sure some of them had some compassion on her, but there was no one that had compassion on her that had the power to heal her the way that Christ did. She wasn't invisible to him. And I think maybe, maybe for I'm sure there's someone here this morning, maybe many of you here this morning, and you would say, man, I, I feel invisible. I feel invisible. Maybe, maybe you suffered and struggled in, in, your, in your mind or your heart about something for so long that you go, man, it's, I, I don't even bother asking people about it anymore because no one can help. Listen, Christ sees you today. Christ knows you He's not unfamiliar with your suffering. You're not broken beyond his power. 
And so imagine, imagine we've all seen this unfold. Imagine what sort of response we'd have. Think about what they probably did in that moment. I mean, it's gotta be a worship service, right? Like the synagogue leaders like calling to, to get all the other leaders here so they can all rejoice and they can all praise God, right? That's what's gonna happen, right? We just read it. You know that's not what happens. Uh, so that leads us to number two. Jesus rejects the self-sufficient. Look at what happens in verse 14. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded by telling the crowd, there are six days when work should be done. Therefore, come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. So as if on cue, the synagogue leader is furious. Instead of celebrating with the team, right? The, we had a success. Like the, the game winning touchdown was scored. Nope, he doesn't do that. He steps on the field and throws the flag. I, illegal healing on the rabbi Jesus. 15 yard penalty, replay the down. Um, that's my second football analogy, so you're welcome. Uh, he's not celebrating at all, is he? He's angry, indignant. It sounds like if he could take the healing away, he would. And even, even though his fury is directed at Jesus, I think it's interesting that he actually turns and speaks, not to Jesus, but to the crowd. He knows better than to get in a verbal tussle with Jesus. That's not gone well for his friends. Uh, so he just speaks out to the crowd and basically is warning them about Jesus. Uh, and I think he's basically saying, can you believe this guy? Can you believe what he did? You guys know the rules. There's six days for work. This isn't right. The Sabbath is not for healing. Anyone who really cares about God knows that. This is way out of line, he's saying. And so we forget just for a minute this little passive aggressive thing he's doing. Uh, and, and just imagine as the woman hears this synagogue leader speak, how she must be feeling. She has to be going, I've suffered. 18 years I've suffered. And you're saying I should have come a different day? There have been tons of different days. Six days a week for 18 years, that's like 900 weeks. That's like almost 6,000 other days. Where were all of the healings on those days? No one did anything for me. All these years, all those days. But this man, he saw me today. He healed me today. My suffering is over today because of him. And all you can say is wrong day. But she doesn't have to say what she's probably thinking because Jesus speaks up for her. Look at verse 15. But the Lord answered him and said, hypocrites, doesn't each one of you untie his ox or donkey from the feeding trough on the Sabbath and lead it to water? And I know we don't always, can't always read tone in the scriptures, but Jesus sounds exasperated. I can't say that word. Exasperated, that's the word. He sounds exasperated, right? He sounds just fed up. You guys, you hypocrites. Not just the one guy, he uses a plural word. You hypocrites, all of you, you, you Jewish leaders that have, have been hypocrites in your leadership. And to understand kind of the, 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 the condemnation that he's making here, I think we have to understand the controversy, the Sabbath controversy that's going on. 
Uh, we've talked about this a little bit before, but, but as you know, uh, the, the nation of Israel had always sought to honor the Sabbath. That was the fourth of the 10 commandments that was given to Moses uh, in Exodus. Uh, we, we read it in Exodus chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor for six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. It was a, it was a, a beautiful command given by God that they would experience the rest to mirror God's rest in creating creation, that he created the earth and, and the world in six days. But what it meant to observe the Sabbath what it meant to honor the Sabbath isn't spelled out in a lot of detail in the scriptures. There are a couple of examples where we see practices that were, that were forbidden or that they were told to avoid, like cooking on the Sabbath or building fires, some other obvious labor that they weren't to do, but, but that's it. There's not a lot of detail. And so in typical rabbinical tradition and fashion, over time, uh, rabbis and experts in the law, they would put their heads together and they would, def- they would try to define it. What exactly is it to work? And they wouldn't define it just for themselves. They, would define, they defined it for all of Israel. And over the years, they came up with 39 different forms of labor that were forbidden. And to name just a few of them, I'm not gonna read them all, but, but writing, erasing, carrying, extinguishing, cooking, washing, sewing, finishing, tearing, untying, planting, combing, weaving, building, demolishing, to name just a handful and they, they gave each of those, each of those uh, things that they weren't to do that they were considered work, it was like when you click on something on your computer on a website and you click on it and it drops down and it blows up this, this list of this paragraph underneath. That's what it was like. Each one of those has a paragraph or many underneath it of a description, of an explanation of what that means, what they're not to do. Here's what it means not to do this. And of course, each generation then would, with, with technological advances um, and all that was, they would have to then revisit and re-clarify, explain them further. Here's what it means now in this generation uh, to, to be faithful to this command. And the pinnacle of, of one of these rules in, in our modern culture includes the use of something called a Shabbat elevator. Uh, because one of the things that's prohibited in scripture is uh, burning a fire. Now you might ask, what does is, what is operating an elevator have to do with burning a fire? Uh, well, burning now... Uh, that was made then to include, uh, over time, anything that would make a spark. Anything that would make a spark. So that, that would mean like to, to turn your car ignition on, makes a spark, that's forbidden. You can't accelerate and use the gasoline because that burns, that's burning. Uh, so, so driving a car, not, not, uh, you're not to do that on the Sabbath. Uh, completing any sort of electrical circuit is akin to causing, causing a spark. So, because uh, that's, that's, again, another form of burning. So to flip on a light switch, uh, that's, that's forbidden, that's not allowed. Uh, that's work, so it's, so it's forbidden. Which, which leads us back to our elevators. Uh, the pressing of an elevator button because it causes a light to come on and because it, it completes an electrical circuit which tells the elevator how to operate and what to do and it powers the elevator, then that's work. Therefore, it's forbidden on the Sabbath. So to be a, a faithful Jew, you would either have to abstain from that activity altogether or you have to find a way around, a, a loophole, if you will, a way to accomplish the task with, without technically violating the rule. So, so for example, let's say you live on the top floor of a, of a high rise, of a, of a tall building, 
And, and on the Sabbath, you, you, need to, you need to leave your home and you need to go back to your home. How do you, how do, you do that if you are unable to climb all of the stairs? So they, so they did something. They created something that you would need. You would need a Sabbath or a Shabbat elevator. An elevator, maybe you've seen one of these before. An elevator with no buttons. All day long, the elevator would travel to the top floor of a building and still you, you will find these around the world. An elevator travels to the top floor and it stops on the top floor and then it goes floor by floor all the way back down. The door's opening on every floor all the way back down to the ground floor and then without anyone telling it to do it, it just goes back to the top again and goes over and over all day long. It runs all day so that no one has to press a button and there it is, a workaround a way to be faithful to the law. But whose law? There are no prescriptions in God's words as, as far as I know as, as it pertains to the operation of an elevator. Uh, no requirements regarding pushing buttons. No, these are, these are man-made guidelines designed as a way to know, to know you've done it, to know that you've kept the law so that you can know you've honored the Sabbath. And, and don't, aren't our legalistic hearts really probably drawn to things like this. Like, yeah, I'd love to have like a list of rules that would tell me exactly how to know that my heart is right. Just so I can be pleased that I've kept the law. But of course, over time, these, these man-made guidelines became more than guidelines. They became the law itself. Not only written by the rabbis, but constantly tweaked, added to, clarified by who else? The rabbis, the, the scholars and the law Oh, we didn't think about that scenario. Can, let me, let's just think about it for a second. Can someone push the elevator button for you? Is that allowed? So let's, we have to clarify that in the law. And you're going, okay, Kevin, what in the world does this have to do with this lady uh, that Jesus healed on the Sabbath? Well, one such area of legal clarification was caring for animals. Think of all the work that it takes to care for, uh, to take care of large farming animals. And now imagine doing all of that work on the, on the Sabbath without working. Like, how would you do it? The animals still need to be cared for. So you ha they need to be cared just like the other six days. They need to eat. Okay, so we'll, we'll tie them to the feeding trough and we'll give them food before Sabbath begins. A little extra food that will sustain them. Great. Okay, but it's hot. How will they drink? Oh, they can't, they can't, we can't carry the water here. Okay, so we're gonna have to take them to the water, but it's, it's work to untie a knot on the Sabbath according to the tradition. So how will, we, how will we take them? Okay, well, we need a clarification in the law then. We know that God is merciful. We know that, his, that he wouldn't want his animals to experience suffering. So, so the rabbis then made allowances in the law. We think God would be okay then if we untie only non-permanent knots on the Sabbath. Not for work. We can't untie the knots for work, but we can untie them to care for animals. And so this became allowable under rabbinical law. Each Sabbath, when the heat was severe, a faithful Jew could untie their oxen or their cattle and guide them to the stream. Stay there while they drank and then bring them back and tie them up again. And Jesus is just beyond himself. You Hypocrites. You've created an entire system, rule upon rule, to justify yourself before God. 
And maybe it began from a good place of wanting to honor God, but in all your lawmaking, all your law keeping, you've made sure to include provision to take care of your life, your possessions, your family, down to your animals. So each Sabbath, there you are, tying and untying your animals, walking them, feeding them. You've made these exceptions and in your law keeping, you've thought yourself right before God, justified, accepted, even merciful. You hypocrites, he says, you've lost the plot because look what he says in verse 16. He says, Satan has bound this woman, a daughter of Abraham for 18 years. Shouldn't she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? Don't you see the connection that he's making? This woman isn't cattle in danger of of losing a meal. She's not an ox who, who may suffer from thirst in the heat. No, she is far more precious. She's a woman made in God's image. She's a sister in Abraham's family, a priceless daughter of God. And she's been tied up by Satan, not for a day, but for 18 years. You don't understand the father. You hypocrites, you don't get his heart. She's your sister. And you, you're one of the leaders of the family and you've cared more about the rules, the rules that you made, more than you cared about the family that God gave you to lead. Think back, if, if you recall, in, in Jeremiah 23, um, Jesus, or the, the, God gives uh, a, a, a condemnation toward the shepherds, the leaders of Israel. This is what he said in Jeremiah 23. He said, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. This is the Lord's declaration. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says about the shepherds who tend my people. You have scattered my flock, banished them and have not attended to them. I am about to attend to you because of your evil acts. This is the Lord's declaration. Jesus steps onto the scene with these Jewish leaders and says, you've neglected the sheep long enough. This precious sheep was suffering. And yet because of your self-righteousness, you missed her. You missed her. You, You even stood in her way. But this woman won't suffer with you as her shepherd anymore. I will be her shepherd now. I have untied her. And you dare call it a violation of the Sabbath. This is a pretty stinging rebuke he's making. So we have these two very different people here. We've got Jesus, we've got this woman who Jesus has had immense compassion upon her. And then we have uh, these leaders of the synagogue who he is seeming to reject and rebuke. Well, why? Why the difference? It, it seems so clear, but I think we should highlight the difference between the two. You see, the, the Jewish leaders, they believe that they sit where they sit because of their hard work and their discipline. The good that you see in our lives is because of our faithful observance of the law. We've done it. There was a self-sufficiency in their attitude, self-righteousness. But the poor the needy, those like this woman, they don't have any of that. It's, look at me. 
I could have never done this myself. I could have never saved myself. I could have never healed myself. Whatever the good you see in me, it's only by the grace of God. These Jewish leaders, they, they didn't see themselves as weak like the woman. No, they were, they were too wise to be broken like her. They could easily see her broken and her crooked back, but they were very, very blind to their broken and their crooked hearts. Their hearts that were weighed down by their pride, hunched over in their soul, dying. And that's why they were okay with, Jewish, with Jesus coming in and teaching. Of course, he'll just come in and teach the law, the law that we're already keeping perfectly well. But what the woman and the religious leaders both needed was more than a teaching. They needed saving. They needed rescue from their brokenness. Remember when the Pharisees chastised Jesus back in Luke 5 for hanging out with sinners? What, what did he tell them? Let's, this is Luke 5, uh, verse 31. He told them, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous. And I think just in parentheses there, we can say the self-righteous. I've not come, come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And like he told the, the, the leaders last week, in last week's test, text, he asked them, do you think you're more righteous than these others? Whoever it is you're comparing yourself, do you think you're more righteous than them? And his answer to them was no, unless you repent, you will perish like them as well. In the presence of Jesus, church, hear this. In the presence of Jesus, our self-sufficiency is a myth. It's a myth. It's not real. It's a poison pill. We're so good at creating little litmus test hurdles of righteousness that we can easily clear ourselves. And that sort of self-sufficiency, it's a lie. But the gospel tells us the truth. The truth is this, that we are all bent and broken. Sinners in need of saving. All of us. You could never clear the bar. Whatever bar you've set up, it's higher. You could never clear the bar, the bar of the law of God. But guess what? Jesus can. And Jesus did. And he did so for you. If Jesus is merely a teacher for you, if that's, if that's all you think you need, a few course corrections, some clarifications on how to keep the law, then Jesus says, I didn't come for you. I didn't come for you. I came for sinners. To be received by God, we must see our need. The cross is real. And the cross isn't real. We're gonna, Easter's coming, right? And we're gonna look at the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is not because of the idea of sin. No, Jesus went to the cross because of real sins. Real sins that you have committed, that I have committed. Real brokenness in us. And those sins required a real death. And Jesus took that for you. He stood in your place. Maybe, maybe you've never known that sort of Christianity. You've just thought, you know what? All my life has just been trying to do right trying to follow whatever rules I think there are out there. Like I just, I, kn I know this is right, so I'll do that. Try to follow the teaching. Try to learn what Jesus said to do. Look, Jesus did not come to teach mostly good people how to be better people. He came for the lost, for the broken, for those who know they have sin. 
But if you believe you're righteous without him, if you don't see your need, you'll never come. At the cross, the great exchange took place. Such a great exchange. The greatest exchange of all of the exchanges that there are in the world. That you got the righteousness of God. And he took your sin. That's amazing. But he comes and he gives his righteousness to those who know they have sin. Which leads us to number three. Jesus makes us ready for the kingdom. So when this great exchange takes place, he gives us a life with him. And, and so that's, that's what he's offering to this woman and to all those who would believe. He's, he's telling the crowds, this is what the kingdom is like. And therefore, this is what your life is gonna be like. If you follow Jesus, if you've seen your need, neediness is the ticket into the kingdom. And the self-righteous, they, aren't, they, they, they don't repent and they will be rejected. But everyone who is invited in, they know that their, their strength comes from the grace of God. It comes from weakness. And so now he is getting you ready to be a child in the kingdom, to be a subject in his kingdom. And he closes out this teaching with, I think, two quick little one-sentence parables that if Christ saves you, here's what your life in the kingdom is gonna be like. Here's what you're gonna be like. And he gives us, I think, two things here. Number one, you'll be a safe place for the weak and insignificant. You'll be a safe place for the weak and insignificant. Look at verse 18. He said, therefore, so notice we got a therefore. That means this is not a new scene. Like this is a, he's saying this to the same group of people, to the religious leaders and to this woman and to the crowd. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And what can I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds of the sky nested in its branches. And this is, this is fascinating because Jesus here is bringing back three metaphors that he used in the last chapter or so. Uh, trees, birds, and bread. So he's bringing all of them back. Uh, and if you recall, at the end of last week's message, uh, we saw another type of tree. It was, it was a dead fig tree. And the dead fig tree we're supposed to see, I think Jesus is showing us, that's Israel. That's God's people. What was Israel supposed to be? They weren't supposed to be a dead tree. They were supposed to be a fruitful tree, a fruitful vine for the nations, blessed by God to be a blessing to the world. I think just about the laws that God gave them for their own property, right? They were to leave the edges. When they, when they harvested their crops, they were to leave the edges. For who? For the poor, for the foreigner. Don't, don't keep all that you have. No, even with your crops, you're to be a blessing to the world, to the needy. And that wasn't just a farming lesson. It was a picture for how their entire existence was to be, that God had shown on Israel. And now they were to be a source of light and life to the world. Nations would show up and feast on the goodness of God because of what they saw in Israel. But that's not what happened. What did they become instead? Well, we saw, that was the picture we saw last week, the dead fig tree. The, the, the vineyard owner showed up and said, this tree's dead. There's no life. Cut it down. There's no fruit. There's nothing happening. God is saying, Israel has failed to show the reality of my goodness to the world. They've, they've not done what they were designed to do. There's no fruit, no nourishment. Even John the Baptist back in uh, chapter three of Luke said, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
But now we got a different tree. Christ's kingdom is a different kind of tree. Look at verse 19. He says, it's like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. Mustard plants are sometimes small and unimpressive, but sometimes they grow quite huge. They can be like massive trees. And that's what we see with this one, growing big. And the kingdom of God might have a humble beginning like a mustard plant. Uh, when we're seeing the humble beginnings of the kingdom, Jesus came from Nazareth, uh, a very humble start, but the kingdom's gonna, it's gonna go big. And here's what the kingdom is like, he says, in the second half of 19. He said, it grew and became a tree and the birds of the sky rested in its branches. He's saying the kingdom of God won't just be a fruitful tree. No, it's going to be a refuge. A refuge where the birds of the sky will come and they'll find safety. They'll come and be able to build their nest and rest. Remember, Jesus has talked about birds a couple of times along the way, hasn't he? And each time the idea was, think of how insignificant a bird is, how unimportant and worthless in the, in the world that a bird is, no ability to do anything for himself. And he's saying, but the tree of the kingdom, the household of God that Jesus was building, it was gonna be a safe place for the most insignificant. The most forgotten among us would be able to build a nest. And not only will the kingdom provide refuge for the needy and the insignificant, we will too. Our lives will do that too because we're in the kingdom. We've, we've decided, we, we've, we've been saved by the king. We've met the king. We wanna follow him. And so that's what our lives will be like, just like the kingdom. So the church of Jesus right now, it's not a club for the self-sufficient. It's a refuge for the broken, for the insignificant. But, but until you meet Jesus, you won't care about those people in need. You won't want to offer a refuge. You won't care about the poor and the broken because you'll always think, man, if they just tried a little harder, been a little smarter like me. Oh, but once you meet, once you meet our savior, you can't help but want to help those who suffer. You want them, you long for them to know safety, abundant refuge, because that's what you found. That's what Jesus gave you. He forgave you. He saved you. You want them to know that. Are you a safe place? Are you a safe place for the spiritually sick and broken? For the diseased, for the lost, for the hurting? How many, how many of, of our faith practices have little room for those who are far from Jesus? Do your life groups, your small groups that you're a part of, is there room for the lost to show up there? Does your Sunday schedule, your family rhythms, is there room? Is there room at the table for a lost friend, for a neighbor who's far from Jesus? And, and do, you, do you seek them out? Jesus sought us out. And Jesus is saying, until we see our utter need, we won't be able to be that. And then the other way he is preparing us for the kingdom, he gives us one more word picture. He gives us the bread. In verse 20, it says, again, he said, what can I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. When you truly encounter Jesus, the second point is that he is changing you from the inside. 
He's changing you from the inside. A chapter ago, Christ warned the disciples to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. He, he called that hypocrisy. That, that, that's, that's what's working in the hearts of the Pharisees and the fruit of their hypocrisy is a rejection of the savior. But self-sufficiency isn't just a dead, dead tree. It, it, it turns out a bad batch of bread. But the leaven of the kingdom, the key ingredient in the kingdom, in the kingdom bread, it's not effort. It's not self-discipline, it's not self-improvement. No, it's, it's an alien righteousness that we need. Something outside of ourselves, the leaven of the kingdom. This is the ongoing daily sanctifying work of Christ in my soul, making me more like Jesus, building a kingdom, working his sanctifying grace into his people and building his kingdom. He transforms us. He changes us. And it doesn't come from us. It comes from outside of us. It is his and he's working it into our lives, making us more like him. And this unimpressive little piece of dough that is my life and that is your life, that is our church, he's doing something, working something, making something in us that's glorious. It's his work. He's the one who began it and he's the one who's going to complete it just as he completes it and builds his kingdom. Church, this is the offer of Christ. All we bring to the table is our need. We come to the savior with empty hands and then he does the work. He does the work. I, I, wanna, I wanna end in, uh, with, with a, by reading a, a call to worship that's used. Uh, Ray Ortland and Emmanuel Church in Nashville uses this. They adapted it from uh, James Boyce uh, at 10th Pres Church in Philadelphia. Um, but I think it's such a profound statement of our need before the Lord. So, so uh, follow along with me as I read this to close. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, the friend of sinners. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, we, we are so self-deceived sometimes and that we can do it. And that all the good in our life is, is our hard work and our, our effort. And Lord, would you, would you rid our minds of that sort of thinking? Would you, would you bring us back to the place where we would believe that we have nothing that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. That eternal life itself comes from you. Lord, would you help us to believe that? We are prone to not believe it. But Lord, we, I ask that you would do a energizing work in this room right now. That we would just be free to recognize that our need is, is where to start 
that that's where you want us. Not trying to prove ourselves, not trying to earn our way, but, but that you just want us there. Lord, will we feel that? Would you convince us? Would you convince those in this room who, who, who want so badly to justify themselves and would you just bring us to ground zero? And that we would find all of our worth in Christ, all of our sins forgiven there and life forevermore by the power of the cross, by Jesus at work in us. We love you. Lead us in this way now. Lead us by your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.